Good morning, Henry. How are you today? I'm not so bad. How are you? Yeah, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. So survived a weekend workshop here, here in the viewfinder villa. We did some tabletop photography, uh, which sounds boring, but it's really actually very much fun to play. It doesn't like, sound boring. It sounds quite exciting. It's like product stuff and uh, very, very amazing. Very amazing revelations on how advertising photography works. So Sounds good. We did this for the weekend. We're recording this on a Monday, uh, so I'm still in recovery, <laughs> but it's everything's fine. <laughs> uh, so, so we have a recovery podcast recording. Yeah. Uh, so so the, um, the, the, the slant of this show towards um, geopolitical stuff that we kind of did in the last episode um where we're we got some nice feedback thank you everyone um and what we heard is yes that is pretty cool the direction to take the the show into uh but of course we also want to talk about other things that are interesting or noteworthy and uh, so we've picked or you have picked one uh, other topic for today that i have no knowledge about whatsoever i've uh, i've heard the the term before, but um, other than that, I've never really looked into that. So this is about a flight. Yeah, it's basically about a, a plane crash into uh, Antarctica's second highest mountain, which um, also is the deadliest accident in the history of the airline, which is Air New Zealand. And all of that happened in the late 70s. And that's okay. something I would really love to go a little bit deeper into it. So, we, of course, want to cover geopolitical uh, topics as well, but that also needs a little bit of preparation. We want to um, do a, yeah, a good podcast episode on that. And by that, we just need a little bit prepping time. So we're just focusing on some topics we already prepared before that. All right. So uh, Air New Zealand uh, flight didn't didn't get out of Antarctica. What, what, how, what, what's the background before we dive into that? Is that just a tourist flight or what was that? Yeah, back in the 70s, um, Air New Zealand actually started um, sightseeing flights to Antarctica. They started in Auckland and Christchurch and uh, flew all the way to um, Antarctica, mainly to Mount Erebus because it's a uh, uh, very obvious landmark. It's uh, the second highest mountain, as I already said. It's an active volcano. It's the uh, south, most southern active volcano in the world. Okay. It's It has an active lava lake in the crater. So that definitely is a sightseeing oh, spot. Oh, so, so, so it's, it's surrounded by uh, Antarctic ice, and then there's this pool of, of glowing lava in the middle. Yeah, basically, Mount Erebus is um, a mountain on a tiny island, and it's basically forming the island together with uh, three smaller uh, peaks. It's um, forming Ross Island in the Ross Sea. So the island is surrounded by shelf ice, which is coming down from the big glaciers of Antarctica. And on the foot on uh, of that mountain on Ross Island is the largest research um, station nowadays. It's the McMurdo Station from uh, from the United States, and also the Scott Station from uh, Scott Base from the New Zealand's New Zealand uh, scientific program. Um, the surroundings make it quite interesting. So you basically start over the 
uh, Southern Ocean, and then you just start seeing icebergs flowing around. Um, you start going over sea ice, and then over the shelf ice, and then you see this this uh, island just rising out of the shelf ice with this mountain um, in its center, and that's quite a unique um, experience, definitely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they Air New Zealand did one of these sightseeing flights over Mount Erebus, and they did a lot of those flights. So that was actually flight number fourteen. So uh, there have been thirteen more flights before that airplane crashed into that mountain. So it was back in the time, um, even though it was quite pricey. The flights in uh, November seventy nine were at. Um, about one thousand, uh, about three hundred and fifty, three hundred sixty New Zealand dollars back in the day. That's um, that's quite a lot. It would nowadays be one thousand four hundred, one thousand five hundred uh, dollars uh, worth um, if you um, the if if you recognize the inflation. So that was uh, still one of the easiest ways to get a glimpse on Antarctica because back in the days there haven't been um, yeah, landings or ships going down there. That was uh, still the future. But uh, flying there with a plane, um, going into some low altitudes, getting some nice pictures and going back um, within 12 hours, that's um, quite quite an experience. And I'm just looking at the map. Uh, so so um, Ross... Island and Mount Erebus is on the side of Antarctica that points towards New Zealand. So that is New yes. Zealand is pretty much the closest big landmass uh, to that place. If you open a political map of um, Antarctica, where you can see all those um, different claims from different countries, and you see that the whole Ross Sea is um, basically um, the New Zealand claim of Antarctica. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is um, kind of their home turf or they considered home turf in Antarctica. But that could be a different podcast talking about the political claims <laughs> down there. We, we will not run out of material, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, they did uh, flight number 13, 14? 14. 14, Four, 14. Not, not the unlucky 13, the 14 <laughs> at least. And no. uh, what, what happened? What happened? Why, why is it significant? Uh, it is significant because um, it was the first loss of an airplane, the first deadly accident for Air New Zealand. Uh, it was the deadliest um, accident in the history of New Zealand. And it was the first flight where you have uh, a total loss of life. Um, the circumstances have been um, highly disputable. So basically what happened here is um, that the crew wasn't uh, prepared well enough. Um, the research later on blamed the the crew instead of the whole system behind it, and the whole airline actually tried to load all the blame uh, towards the pilots. And it took quite some years of investigation, of um, of trials to prove that the crew is not the one to blame, but the whole system of the um, airline management and the air authorities in New Zealand, which actually changed the flight plan without noticing um, the pilots or the crew and let them start a flight without being prepared well enough. Even though, and that's something that um, the 
official accident report focused on mainly the crew didn't check eventually the changed route on the day of departure but that's something we can just break down step by step and uh, go a little bit more into so, detail in a second. So in aviation, a flight plan is pretty much a prerequisite for going up uh, in a plane and and it uh, lines out where the plane is supposed to go and that is based on weather patterns and all sorts of uh, other information, right? Exactly. Uh, it contains a lot of information and it's even more important if you have a terrain like Antarctica, where a compass is not working. Um, it's true. It's pretty it close. <laughs> the South Pole compass yeah. won't be any good there. It, it, it makes it quite difficult there, and um, it's also uh, the conditions there. Um, if you have a sightseeing flight, you want to go low enough to allow some uh, nice pictures, but you want to be high enough to be um, in a safe altitude. Um, all of those things come together, and that's uh, part of the flight plan. Um, however. The flight plan actually has been prepared quite a few days in advance. So the captain and the co-pilot, they have sitting down and um, they looked at the maps, they looked at the uh, previous flight plans, and they actually copied just previous flight plans. They just took the same numbers than flight plans before them. And a pilot has flown one of the earlier flights. He figured that um, some of the coordinations in there, uh, coordinates um, in there, are not right, and they somehow do not match with the actual coordinates they were flying. So he informed um, the uh, New Zealand um, navigation section of the um, air authorities, and they changed actually the waypoint coordinate um, for. The, for one flight within McMurdo Sound, which is like the huge bay where Ross Island is situated in. And no one um, informed the crew about that change. So the crew actually received on the morning of departure those changed coordinates, um, put them into the computer and the board computer on the aeroplane without uh, cross-checking it again on maps. And um, by that, just... Yeah, that basically led to the whole disaster. Wow! So that's pretty much a miscommunication or or a lack of communication. And a lack a, of communication and exactly. a lack of checking as well. Yes, um, the lack of checking um, is something that shouldn't happen, but is understandable from a human perspective because there have been thirteen flights with the same um, data set, oh, and really? they have been the successful. So, so why did the other thirteen turn out successful and the fourteenth not? If they used the same underlying navigation data, um, the, the 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 mistake or the the um, the discrepancy in the data set has been not so um, how to say. I have have it wasn't not severe enough exactly to uh -huh. um, to to force a crash, but. Since they uh, changed the coordinates um, and the crew has not uh, cross-checked, so they, they, ha they have not been aware of that uh, change, they thought they were in a different position as they actually were, and that led to the disaster. It's not the change of coordinates itself. The change of coordinate would have worked out if the crew would be aware of it, but they haven't. Mm -hmm. So the flight is on its way. Air, Air New Zealand Flight 901. Um, and then what exactly happens? Do we know? Is that is that 
known after the fact? Is there records of, records of that? Is the did they find a flight recorder? Yeah, um, let's uh, let's take one step back. So those flights actually, there have been quite big things. There have been big events. They had huge big names as guides on board. They were just constantly talking about. Um, the surroundings you see. So they, uh, it's not just like a flight and the pilot is just saying, oh, we are flying over Antarctica, you see on the left side, blah, 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 and on the right side, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so it's, so it's a bit it's a bit like our expeditions that we did. It's a little bit our expedition. It's a flight expedition. Mm -hmm. And um, the guides actually have been big names back in the time. Sir Edmund Hillary was one of the guides and oh, he okay. was actually supposed to be on that flight. <laughs> and just through a coincidence, he didn't. Um, went on that flight, but uh, his longtime friend and uh, climbing companion Peter Mulgrew, he stood in for him and uh, went on that flight and uh, eventually died. Um, when they started, I just uh, flew over and approached Ross Island. They took um, uh, some circles um, in McMurdo Sound before approaching uh, direct Ross Island. Um, do they find? The flight recorder, yeah, they did. Actually, this accident led to the largest search and rescue mission in New Zealand history. And um, that's part of the next chapter we could um, open in, in that episode. Because this operation, um, which was called Operation Overdue, is um, a quite famous one. It's the most um, most amazing um setup they chose actually completely unprepared um police commissioners were sent out to antarctica to an <laughs> island oh, wow. in midst of the shelf ice they camped on the foot of mount erebus an active volcano um in those freaking cold temperatures um to identify the bodies to identify the crash site to secure the crash site and to um yeah, to provide the information, the input for an investigation later on on the circumstances of that crash. And they've been successful, even though um, the whole team, they have been on their personal limits, all of them, because no one was really prepared for it. Um, there is an amazing documentary from uh, New Zealand TV uh, about that called Operation Overdue. So if you Google that and you find it somewhere um, free for stream, uh, that's really a recommendation. Have a look into that. It's uh, with a lot of reenactment, but it's also containing uh, interview footage of, uh, of a few of those um, people which participated in that um, mission. So that's really a recommendation to have a look into it. Okay. So when they actually departed, um, it took a few hours until I um, approached McMurdo Station, which is uh, the research station of the United States down on Ross Island. And they are actually kind of um, uh, taking over the radio communication for the pilots. Th uh, so McMurdo Station allowed them to descend to... Mac McMurdo, not Mac McMurder, just... Uh... McMurdo, yes. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> crash flight in the McMurder station sounds kind of <laughs> ominous. No, it's McMurdo. McMurdo, yeah. exactly. Um, they allowed the plane to uh, descend to roughly 10,000 feet, around 3,000 meters, and continue to um, a visual approach so how, high actually, is, how high is Mount Erebus? It's uh, a little bit taller than 3,000. It's 3,700. Okay. Almost 3,800 meters. So um, 
12,500 feet. Um, according to the flight plan, they weren't approaching Mount Erebus um, directly, but uh, going between the peaks. So going low enough um, wouldn't make such a difference. Um, the descent was also um, meant for the circulation in front of the island and then um, yeah, rising up into higher altitudes um, a little later. Um, when you when you research a little bit into that topic, then you find uh, some journalists who have been on previous flights of um, of Air New Zealand's on there, and in fact, their own uh, Air New Zealand's travel magazine they showed photographs of uh, previous flights, and they are clearly operating under this ten thousand feet. Um, zone they have been lower than six thousand feet in fact which is thousand eight hundred meters so um given that fact and given those information the pilots believed that the plane was over open water when they in fact have been approaching the island already um they had a layoff clouds and the layoff clouds blended in with um, the snow-covered volcano and the shelf ice. Um, not entirely, but just the sector to look at. So that's something that formed a so-called sector whiteout. So the pilots couldn't identify the mountain. They were just thinking it's just clouds. And um, that is pretty much um, yeah, the main reason why they just continued. Um, we have to say that both pilot and co-pilot have never been to Antarctica before. They have been um, very well-experienced pilots, though. And uh, the navigator on deck, um, he was to Antarctica once before. So it's uh, for Antarctica quite unexperienced, but in general, as pilots, quite well-experienced crew. Is is flying in Antarctica a, a challenge for a pilot who is experienced otherwise? Are there any things flying up there, maybe the cold, that make flying different or it it might be the temperature uh, which also um, influences but the most uh, severe issue here is um, what we talked right now is that um, structures are just blending in um, you don't really see if that's a mountain if it's shelf ice if it's open water if it's um, sea ice um, because when you have a cloud layer, it's a thin cloud layer is completely enough because it blends in white. It mm -hmm. just diffuses structures. It diffuses the landscape, and you're not aware if you're over, um, over land, over a mountain, are you approaching a mountain, or are you approaching the open sea? They actually thought that they are already over the island, and they see the Ross shelf eyes behind the island. Oh, wow. So they were estimating themselves on a completely different position as they actually were and that makes the whole situation so tragic hmm okay so then However, the next the next thing is they flew into the mountain they, exactly so the um the uh, ground warning system um just alarmed them and uh, they were completely surprised by that because they couldn't see something so what they did actually they just uh, tried to pull up um they which is the logical reaction for a pilot to pull up when the when the airplane yeah. tells you you're too close to the ground exactly if the um if, if the system tells you pull up pull up then you pull up um they 
uh, started um, a way through. So it just started to um, put the engines on, on full power and pulled up the plane, but it was too late, so it would have been too close. So they actually just crashed into the side of Mount Erebus and they exploded. And um, the uh, incident report just says that this um, impact just instantly killed everybody on board. Um, it's supposed to be uh, 12.50 p.m. at that position, so around noon. And they crashed into an elevation of 1,467 feet, which is 440-something meters above sea level. Um, they, um, the McMurdo station tried to um, contact the flight, and they figured out that it's not reacting, so they informed the Air New Zealand uh, headquarters in Auckland and the United States search and rescue uh, personnel on that station on McMurdo have been placed on standby and as soon as Air New Zealand um, confirmed the loss of communication um, the United States search and rescue personnel were the first to send out to the site. The total amount of passengers and crew which lost life in that incident is 257 so it's 237 passengers and 20 crew so that's a, a big number. It was the first total loss um, in the history of Air New Zealand and uh, by, far, by far the largest incident in, in uh, New Zealand air uh, history. Okay, so the flight is lost. The lives are lost. Um, what's next? Did, did they... Did they like I guess they lost radio communication. Uh, did they know on land what had happened, or is that something that took longer to find out? Well, when you lose communication to uh, an aeroplane for um, a significant amount of time, then uh, it's very likely that the plane is lost and that it crashed somewhere. So the United States actually um, released a situation report, and on the uh, question of uh, on, on behalf of uh, New Zealand, they sent out um, rescue teams and they search along the assumed flight path. So Air New Zealand provided the corrected flight path and the rescue teams went on those coordinates and couldn't find anything. Um, uh, aircraft crew of the United States Navy, they discovered um, some identified debris along the mountain slopes of Mount Erebus a little later so they actually figured out that the plane has been in a different position as it should be so that was the first um first little hint that something went not as planned so they confirmed the wreckage of that flight um a little later and they also confirmed that there's no um survivors visible so um that's something they just um rated to new zealand and New Zealand then assembled a crew of um, 60 recovery workers um, from the New Zealand police office and the mountain phase rescue team. So they actually set up a team of um, people which never have been in Antarctica, which have never been on a volcano, which never been on big glaciers. And it's kind of crazy. 
it is completely crazy um, <laughs> because they actually didn't really know what to pack and um, how to prepare. So actually, they just packed pretty much everything they could imagine. Um, and they, they were, and really they were sent and they were sent for for their experience in investigating things like that, not for their uh, for their experience in the cold. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it, it wasn't an experiencing uh, the cold mission. The mission was to identify bodies, to identify um, passengers. Um, that was on pressure of behalf of of Japan because twenty four passengers have been Japanese. So Japan put a lot of uh, political pressure on New Zealand to identify the uh, the victims. And um, Air New Zealand, of course, because it was the first major accident for them, uh, wanted to um, get a clear result on what actually happened there um, for their own reputation. And those stuff, the people who sent out to Antarctica, uh, have been sent out to Antarctica, um, their mission was to um, get the flight recorder uh, get a get pictures of the of the crash site and get an idea about what happened. So they did actually. They flew in, and they had um, amazingly crazy uh, conditions. They worked on twelve hour shift, so they split the team in two teams: uh, twelve hours on, twelve hours off. And they identified the crash site in um, a couple of. Um, so, okay, let's take a step back. When they entered um, Antarctica, they flew into McMurdo because that's the big um, hop there. And the Americans introduced them to Antarctica. So they had a little briefing and a survival training. So they actually said, you're not going out there without uh, the basic survival training for um, polar regions. So the Americans trained this uh, rescue team, search and rescue team, in crevasse rescue, in uh, how to identify um, risks, how to assess risks out there. Because they basically were working on a glaciated slope of an active volcano. And they in initiated a system um, of marking uh, body parts, marking aeroplane parts, and marking um, risks like crevasses. So they sent uh, have been sent out, have been uh, split into those two shifts, and they started working on that. And they did a very well job. Um, they eventually identified eighty three percent of the deceased people from evidence such as um, such as uh, body parts, uh, keys and pockets, uh, prints. When when did that when did that mission happen again? Seventy nine, I think. So it was. not not much, not much in terms of DNA uh, evidence back then. No, not much of that. No, no, not back in the day. Seventy nine, yeah, yeah. But they, but they, but they identified eighty three percent of them. Eighty three percent of all the uh, deceased mm -hmm. on board. Um, US Navy photographers worked with the team. Uh, US Navy personnel helped the. Um, the team they haven't really been prepared uh, 
the, the wool gloves they were wearing wasn't really um, good in working with. Um, you couldn't really brighten them and that kind of stuff. So that they were facing just like basic um, problems, like all the Arctic explorers and Antarctic explorers a hundred years before them, because they simply never thought about a rescue mission necessary down there in that environment. Um. They had also uh, they faced a problem of um, skua seagulls, which um, are quite big and aggressive birds. They are killing smaller birds. They are killing uh, penguin chicks and uh, bigger fish and so on. And they actually have started eating the bodies. So they um, were also trying to prevent that to fight the birds of um, eating the diseased even though most of them I guess were probably frozen there yeah but that doesn't matter it's meat yeah that's true uh, so they tried to shoot them away but um, the flares didn't really work so that's quite a difficult was quite a quite a difficult task for them and most of the people involved in that scene, they have never seen a crash site before, um, especially not a, a plane crash site. So it has been quite a psychological pressure on them. Um, they couldn't sleep properly. They couldn't get rid of the pictures. They couldn't really focus on their work. Um, that was uh, a big, big uh, trauma for a lot of people involved in that rescue mission. So the follow-up of that um, mission uh, contained a lot of um, psychological work to um, recover the uh, recovery team. So that's um, quite a lot um, to consider as well. It was an immensely exhausting work for them. So that was really, really at the limit of the physical and psychological abilities for the team. So it was a big, big effort. And when they came back and they actually... Um, could deliver the data for the accident report investigation. Uh, they could deliver the black pox. They could deliver 83% of identified deceased people. They were actually celebrated as heroes. They were welcomed back as heroes. And in 2006, um, New Zealand issued the New Zealand Special Service Medal for this Mount Erebus um, operation overdue so those people involved in that they received the highest um, yeah medal they could um, imagine on yeah. so a little later the um, investigation started for the accident and the accident report was um compiled by the chief inspector of um, aircraft accidents uh, of New Zealand and was released just half a year later. And the official accident report uh, stated the pilot error as the major cause of the accident and attributed blame to the decision of the pilot to descend below the customary minimum altitude level. So they have set kind of a of a, um, a minimum level which you shouldn't fly um, below and 
when the crew was unsure of the plane's position, they just proceeded. So that was the major blame in that report, was the major uh, cause they cited. Um, they have not really uh, taken uh, into consideration a lot of facts, and that actually uh, forced the New Zealand government on public demand to um, set up a commission, uh, an, an investigation commission, which is basically a one-man show. Um, the very highly respected judge, um, Justice um, Peter Mayen, he was the guy who, um, yeah, who was pronounced the uh, investigator. So he went into the fact into the data and his report which was issued a year later um cleared most of the blame um of the crew for the disaster he said that the uh, single dominant and effective cause of the crash was the alteration of the flight plan waypoint without telling the crew so he um put the ball into air new zealand's um, ground. So Air New Zealand changed the flight coordinates without um, advising the crew. And the whiteout conditions were also um, identified as um, a cause because the pilots, assuming they were in a different position as they actually were, thought that this, what they see, could not be the mountain. It must have been the the shelf ice, according just to their own orientation. Um, what Mayen found out later on is that the company tried to um, to hide a lot of those facts. They tried to whitewash themselves. So the airline executive and senior management, they. Um, engage in kind of a conspiracy and that was probably the biggest um, issue in that post-accident report investigation so the judge um, figured out that the whole airline management was involved in a conspiracy on hiding um, um, how's it called hiding evidence Mm -hmm. uh, accusing the pilots and lying to the investigators. And that's, of course, a huge, huge thing for the families of the pilots, um, which were kind of in, in, a, in a public spotlight after the accident. Uh, when you got informed that um, your deceased spouse is um, responsible for the dead of 250 people, and later find out that he actually wasn't but the airline tried to blame the single person to make it easier for the airline um that's kind of a big issue and it was an even bigger issue back then in new zealand hmm. it it's interesting because I, I also i also read that um it, initially there was also a controversy about around the type of airline that was a dc-10 which type of um, aircraft, yeah. another one had all, another DC-10 had also crashed previously in Chicago and then they took those out of the air because they thought the DC-10 had a problem so 
kind of kind of <laughs> reminds me of what's currently going on with the um with the 737 max that's boeing, true yeah right? it's it's a quite similar um, even though the, at, at boeing it looks like it's it's probably the aircraft builders fault and not the pilot's fault or the airline's fault that's true and nowadays it's quite um uh it's quite more difficult to um cover those evidence so you have a lot of people involved you have a lot of media uh, involved nowadays that was a little bit different in the late 70s early 80s but um it's it's definitely comparable yes when you, did you see similarities there when did michael Crichton write airframe uh because <laughs> that is it's i love the book because it's such a thriller and it's um oh it's from 1996 okay that's quite a bit later but this is also about a about uh an airline an air airplane manufacturer who gets in a crisis and it looks at it from inside the manufacturer's point of view but that's beside mm. the point here so yeah well what a story. So it, it wasn't the end of it um because oh, Air, New okay. Zealand, Air New Zealand after that um tried to um fight in court against the uh Mahon uh results of his investigation and um Mahon actually fought back so in the first um Oh so they still tried to bury the evidence. Yes, they still tried, yes. And um uh they got right in some of the in, in some of the case, and uh, Mayan got right on the others. He fought back. Uh, eventually, years later, um, Mayan's um, investigation report was um, received as the um, final report on the accident. You can find it, uh, by the way, online. It's uh, downloadable, and that closed kind of the case it still is um today one of um new zealand's three deadliest disasters in um in history so it's um it still is among the big three um which is which is quite a um quite a thing for a country of new zealand so back in the days that technology uh, we thought we understand it and hmm. it's basically not possible to to uh, lose a plane on such an easy task like flying over Antarctica. So that was quite uh, disillusionating for, for the people back in the days. Has anything coming even close to that happened afterwards in Antarctica or is that no. kind of the biggest thing? It's the biggest thing. It's the biggest um, uh, fatality in, uh, in Antarctica. Um, the sightseeing flights, flights actually, they have been terminated after that. So there is no sightseeing now. Uh, no, no there are there? sightseeing flights now. They started um, as a very limited um, project in 1994, so 14 years after they um, suspended the flights, mm -hmm. and there are still some flights nowadays. Um, possible. There are um, some operators who charter um, an airplane from Qantas, I think it is, to fly um, a similar route, but not over Mount Erebus anymore. So the Ross Island is, uh, or the Ross 
see the Megamoto sound is quite um, a band zone, even though it isn't. But they're oh, not flying is, over is that, there. Is that just because that bad thing happened there? Yeah, I think so. Okay. The registration of the aircraft um, has not been reissued, so that's uh, kind of the legacy of it. Um, the pilots have been um, cleared with the um, report, so mm -hmm. they, it hasn't been their fault uh, as a majority case, a majority issue. Um, so that's uh, it's actually a Boeing uh, seven four seven from Qantas. I just see that does it now, which resumes the flight since uh, two thousand thirteen. So that's uh, quite something. Um, in in uh, on the mountain above Scott Base in Antarctica on Ross Island, uh, a wooden cross was um, set up as a memorial for that crash. And there's a different memorial in Auckland for the ones for the sixteen passengers who couldn't be uh, identified and uh, twenty eight which uh, couldn't be found. So they have like a uh, a separate memorial there for for those. And uh, there is in um, in Auckland also a separate memorial for the twenty four Japanese passengers with a cherry tree. Okay, so Air New Zealand Flight Nine O One. What, what a sad story, and uh, I, I just can't get over how they try to, how to try to distract from the evidence. And that's uh, probably the, the the bigger part of the story. It's not the crash yeah. itself. It's how they actually dealt with it in the aftermath. How they tried to cover everything up and to whitewash their own company to load the blame on those who mm -hmm. can't defend themselves anymore this is probably the biggest story of it do you think something like that could happen today i think so yes i mean just uh look at the um well at that airplane point, that just disappeared yeah mh370 isn't it um the first thing that um, that came up was the pilot has um suicidal crashed the airplane mm -hmm. um it's hard to 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 prove um, those things since we don't have access to those facts. We have to believe uh, a public statement, and that's actually um, what happened back in the days in that case as well. So you have to a certain point um, to believe that what public authorities are issuing that this is kind of the truth, and especially especially in times like these where I'd say. Conspiracy theories are probably on on their all time high. Um, the, there's not a lot of trust in authorities from at least a certain percentage of people now. So, all right, let's leave it at that. Um, interesting story. We'll put a few links in the show notes so you can follow up on that and uh, do a bit of your own research. Just one correction: uh -huh. there has been one accident which had a higher death toll in okay. Antarctica, and that's um, uh, a ship shipwreck in okay. the Drake Passage, which had six hundred and forty-four fatalities oh, oh, okay. in eighteen hundred nineteen. 1819. Yes. But they, the both of them, this um, feels, feels much ship, more far away than 1977. 
79. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, the the ship with the 644 and the aircraft with 257 are the by far largest um, accidents. The next large uh, largest number is 22 fatalities on mm -hmm. a South um, Korean trawler which sunk in the Ross Sea. Still, never, never good. Um, never good. Okay, so uh let's let's leave it at that um thank you so much for pulling that together and if anyone wants to again go out and have a read on their own we'll put some of the links to our sources in the show notes be careful of course out in the internet whatever you you read might <laughs> might might lead you down uh an interesting path so um yeah just just watch out for what kind of sources you run into um, we'll be back uh, hopefully in a week from now with another interesting topic, one that's probably a bit less morbid. And uh, we'd, of course, also like to hear back from you, the listeners, if um, yeah, if the direction that we're taking this show in is interesting for you. If you have topics that you want to suggest, we already received some feedback on that front. So um, thanks for sending that in. And we're definitely looking into doing doing other stories interesting stuff and yeah we need your feedback you can find the ways to contact us on curiouslypolar.com and until then take care and bye bye